Tonight we're going to have a special lesson, uh, the title of which is War, Moral or Immoral? Uh, but before we begin, let's use 1 John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful <clears throat> for the privilege of being able to come together and to study your word. Help us now and guide us as I do uh, want to make clear what the Bible has to say about this subject of war. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. On more than one occasion, I have been asked what the Bible teaches of war. In most cases, the one questioning already has his mind made up thinking, Christ's teachings would make war an anathema in a Christian nation. I was reminded of my past experiences by an editorial written by Frank Turek in which he recalled being asked by a taxi driver, didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies and therefore war is wrong? I read with pleasure Mr. Turk's response, and I'll quote, First, loving your enemies, like turn the other cheek, is a command for individuals in a personal relationship. It is not a command for governments or for individuals put in grave bodily harm. As individuals, we should pray for our enemies and turn the other cheek and instead, of course, of returning insult for insult. Such behavior demonstrates supernatural love aimed at securing the offender's conversion to Christ. But those commands do not mean that we have no right to personal defense, that is self-defense, nor do they mean that a nation should not protect its people from other hostile nations. With regard to self-defense, not only does the Old Testament affirm the right to self-defense as prescribed in Exodus 22.2, but Jesus himself told his disciples to sell their cloak and buy a sword in Luke 22.36. Now let me read First Exodus 22.2. It says, If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. And then in Luke 22:36, Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And that was two disciples who were sent forth to witness for him. And Jesus later told Peter, Put your sword away. So Christ's sacrifice would go forward and the scriptures would be fulfilled. So says Matthew 26, 54. But the very fact that Jesus told Peter and the other disciples to buy a sword shows that its use for personal protection is appropriate. By the way, Jesus never condoned the use of the sword as a means of religious conversion. That's impossible anyway. 
genuine conversion, certainly by definition, must be freely accepted. It cannot be coerced. And so says Matthew 26, verses 52 through 54. Again I shall read, And Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? With regard to war, the New Testament does not does not order newly baptized soldiers to get out of the military. Instead, John the Baptist told them not to abuse their power and to be and to be content with their pay, and that was stated in Luke three verse fourteen. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Soldiers are needed. Because as Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 13, governments have a God-given responsibility to use the sword to protect their people from harm. Let me read you Romans 13, 1 through verse 4. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are ordained be of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then, wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil... Be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. In fact, Paul himself accepted military protection when he was in danger, and Jesus affirmed the rights of government to impose capital punishment, saying that such a right was given by God. Let me read Acts 22, verses 22 through 25, and then uh, John chapter 19, verses 10 through 12. First, the book of Acts. And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And then in John 19.10, reading through verse 12, Then saith Pilate unto him, 
Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from henceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Second, love your enemies cannot mean that all use of force is prohibited because such an interpretation would contradict the passages just cited and result in some absurd conclusions. It would be absurd to say that love your enemies means allow them to kill your family. Now, how would that be loving your family? It would be absurd to, absurd to say that love your enemies prohibits all wars. What about the war against Hitler? Justified? Not justified. Please, how would that be loving to the Jews or the countries overrun by Hitler? Now, with such absurd interpretation, we could not even have police protection a court system, or prisons. Why believe that police can use force but not armies? There is not much difference. Wherefore, some use of force, without it we would have anarchy and innocent people would be hurt or killed. One thing is for certain. Christians contradict scripture when they say no war or use of force can ever be justified. As terrible as war is, war is sometimes the least bad choice available. In other words, Christians are not for war. It's that we are against the alternative. In a fallen state, this world has only one chance, and that is to support the four divine institutions listed in the scripture. And these institutions are volition, marriage, family, and nationalism. To protect these institutions often requires force, and that force may include war. There is so much more information about war in Scripture, so I hope each of you are edified as you follow what the Word of God has to say about war. The United States of America has not fought a war as the Bible describes since World War II. In fact, most of our young people today have no idea how World War II was fought. Several years ago, I had a brief conversation with a young man who asked, what does the Bible teach about war? When I got to the part about killing the enemy, he said, oh, you mean like George Bush is doing today in Iraq? I said, no, no, sir, far from it. Bush is killing our boys because we don't want to kill the enemy. I told him we could bring all our boys home and win that Iraq war by simply bombing the country into the Stone Age. He replied, or his reply was, but what about civilian casualties? A friend of mine 
who he, by the way, is my age, and a former Navy pilot, overheard, the, overheard that conversation with that young man, and afterwards, uh, in private, uh, he said to me, quote, Young people today have no idea how World War II and the Cold War were fought. We then reminisced how the Army Air Corps and later the Strategic Air Force had the, had the mission of killing civilians in order to demoralize our enemies. Sadly, Jimmy Carter, George Herbert Bush, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush later introduced a whole generation to terms like civilian casualties, collateral damage, and a kind and gentler nation. Now let's proceed with the categorical study of this subject, war. I like to call it simply the doctrine of war. Point one. War will always be with us, at least until the Lord returns at his second advent. Notice Matthew 24, 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Mark 13, verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And then Luke, in chapter 21, beginning verse 7, and reading through verse 9. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Jesus replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for when it many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. There will never be peace prior to the second advent of Christ. Individual nations can, however, stay out of war if they elect to maintain a dominant military with a population and leadership willing to use their overwhelming military force. In fact, a good king prepares for war during times of peace. A client nation does not overlook the possibility of future wars. Second Chronicles, for example, chapter 14, verses 2 through 7, I shall read... Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them and towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. 
So when a nation goes to war, it is because the nation did not maintain a strong military force. God is pleased when nations prepare for war and thus avoid war. Nations that delight in war are subject to God's discipline. Notice what Psalm 68 verse 30 says. Scatter the nations who delight in war. And Psalm 120 verses 6 and 7. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Nations are God's way. He made this clear at the Tower of Babel. Let me read you from Genesis chapter 11, reading all the way through verse 9. So here we go. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. It is Satan himself who wants to weaken the nations. Notice Isaiah fourteen twelve: How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, you who did weaken the nations? Internationalism and other coalitions are evil and a tool of Satan. The Antichrist will be the ultimate internationalist. Let me read you from the book of the Revelation beginning in the 13th chapter, verse 3, and we'll read through verse 5. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is likened unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Nationalism is an institution provided by God to protect people within certain geographical boundaries. 
Borders were established uniquely for the needs of Israel according to the scripture. Genesis 10.5 By these were the borders of the nations divided in their lands. Everyone after his tongue, after families in their nations. Deuteronomy 32.8 When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Man has reacted emotionally to war. Why? Because of an apotheosis of life. Life is glorified and death is feared. This fear is sponsored by none other than Satan himself. Hebrews 2.14 and 15 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Mankind overlooks the undoubted and self-evident truth. God provides opportunity for salvation to all. Titus 2.11 makes it clear, For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, and so doth John 1, nine, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And then certainly in the book of Romans, Paul also makes clear. I'll start in verse 8. And I'm going to read through verse... Well, I'm going to read in part through verse 28. So here goes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And then dropping down to verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Not that they didn't hear, not that they didn't understand, but when they knew him, they rejected him. Before death, everyone therefore has maximum opportunity to be saved. Death is gain to a believer and life is opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ah, then let's all commit suicide, one might foolishly say. But wait, suicide is arrogance and assumes God, assumes God does not any longer have a plan for poor little me. Suicide like murder violates the principle. If you are alive, 
God has a purpose for your life. And therefore we should, as 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. As a wonderful friend said to me many years ago, I would be afraid to attempt suicide because it may not be my time. And I would, well, I might simply put myself in a comatose state. All right, is suicide an unforgivable sin? Absolutely not. It's just one of many sins for which Christ died. So much for our brief, if you will, divert his ma. Now let's return back to our subject of war. The word of God does not prohibit killing. In fact, it authorized killing in the subject of, for example, authorized in capital punishment, self-defense, war, and the protection of private property. The command in Exodus 20, 13, 13, excuse me, verse 13, better translated, thou shalt not commit homicide. The word for kill in the Hebrew is katal. The word for homicide or murder is ratzak. In Exodus 20.13, we have ratzak, not katal. Notice in the KJV, it's been translated, thou shalt not kill. It is better thou shalt not commit murder or homicide. All right, it is God's will that we never have war. Wars come from the cumulative lust patterns being exercised within a national entity. Notice James chapter 4 verses 1, 2, and 3. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war. Yet ye have not, because you ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, <clears throat> that you may consume it upon your own lust. It is God's will that every nation be so strong <clears throat> militarily that other nations are afraid to attack. Satan, in fact, is the one who weakens the nations, one of his chief ploys. Let's take a look at several scriptures describing the antics of old Satan himself. Satan, in fact, is described by Isaiah as the ultimate in arrogance and pride, but an ultimate failure. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, reading through verse 19. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? You... Notice, who did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend upon the heights of the clouds. I will be the like, I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit, that they see thee. Narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, 
even all of them lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with the sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. Satan is described by Ezekiel as a created being who was, quote, the living end, and then he fell, was sentenced, and is now being forced to await his execution. Satan is placed in the lake of fire at the end of the appeal phase of the angelic conflict, the end of the millennium. Ezekiel uh, chapter 28 provides us indication about old Satan himself. And I'm going to read, it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation about the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Of course, in this particular case, he speaks first of Tyrus, who is a type of Satan, and then obviously he moves to the subject of Satan in verse 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and the gold. The worshipmanship of thy tabrets, in other words, thy pipes, thy voice, was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. And a voice like Lou Rawls. Alright, or Barry White. Alright, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth and have set thee so. Thou hast, or was, upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy, corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled my sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. By the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth. In the sight of all of them that behold thee. All thee that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror. And never shalt thou be any more. Now Satan is described by John as the loser in battle with Michael, the archangel. Now that's in the middle of the tribulation. Satan and his minions at that time are cast down to earth. It was John who was given the vision to write uh, about this in Revelation chapter 12. Let's start in verse 3 and we'll read through verse 10. 
And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which would be Israel, Mary originally, that has a dual role, Israel itself. Before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to deliver her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was was caught up unto God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which was which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan is not simply the personification of evil influences in the heart, as some might believe. Certainly as many liberal theologians have even asserted. He is a real created being. Moreover, his personality is asserted in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Wars are a result of not heeding God's edict to wield the big stick. Satan has successfully convinced the United States and many of the nations to reduce their military and to even seek international ties and treaties. This clearly has resulted in a great loss of life and the repeated fighting of wars to end all wars. Keep in mind, politicians, in the manner of new puppies, begins wars. And the military has to clean up their collective messes. Jeremiah understood how the permissive will of God had permitted false prophets to deceive Judah into thinking they could resist Babylon's army. Alright, I'm going to read for you Jeremiah 4, beginning in verse 10. And then we'll go to several other verses that give indication of this terrible situation of nations forgetting to maintain armies. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto the soul. During the millennium, war will be abolished. Therefore we know war is not of God, for in perfect environment there is no war. Of course, during the millennium, we will have our own Superman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Isaiah 2, 4, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Until Christ returns, however, as the ultimate warrior, nation shall rise against nation. The first act of Christ at his second advent is to defeat his enemies. The blood shall run as deep as the horse's bridle, and then Christ, as the victor, will judge both Israel and the nations. Or so says the scripture. Revelation fourteen nineteen and 20, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine, winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. The world war and the NIV can be found, that is the word, can be found more than 134 times. Many wars are mentioned in scripture. In fact, God commanded Israel to keep a record of those wars in what he called the book of wars. Notice Genesis 14.2. Avram went to war against Berah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinal, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Our numbers 31.3. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites and to carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Numbers 32.6. Moses said to the Gadites and to the Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 13. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. Joshua 11.18 Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Joshua 11.20 For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua 11.23 So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. First Samuel eight twelve, Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. And First Samuel seventeen twenty, Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp of the army, uh, which was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. And you'll remember what King David to be did to Goliath. 
1 Samuel 19.8, once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. And notice the statement in 2 Samuel 11.1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, unfortunately, remained in Jerusalem. Numbers 21.14, wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. And then Joshua in 11.16, chapter 11, verse 16 says, So Joshua took all that land, the hills, and all the south country, and all the land of Goshen, and the valley, and the plain, and the mountain of Israel, and the valley of the same. Well, I see on the clock, that is the clock on the wall, says it's time to wrap things up for now. Next week we will continue the study of war, but now I want to dedicate the closing moments of this service to anyone who may be without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. So if you are uh, listening and you want to Avoid that terrible place called hell. All you need to do, right where you are, is tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son. And this is something we all need to do because we're all sinners. In other words, all have sinned, says the Scripture, and come short of the glory of God. So the answer is, of course, faith alone in Christ alone. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can simply tell God, the Father, I am believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. I will now pause for just a moment and give you opportunity to do that, and then I will offer our benediction. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to study your Word. Now I would ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would take that which I have presented in this study, and make it real in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.